Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we've been studying Paul's first canonical letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And today's text uh, is most of chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 3. Let's begin reading in chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things... God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we take a moment to dig into this deep text that describes your inner thoughts, and the way that you reveal them to us. I pray that you would help us to connect your life, the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, searching the depths of God from eternity past, 
to the life that we're living now. Because, Lord, to know you is the most important thing that any of us could do. We want to know you. And so, Father, I pray that you would take your word today and cause us to know not just the truth, not just some facts, not just some doctrines, but you. Help us to know you personally through your word today. Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts to bring souls to Christ and to draw believers into further obedience and further joy in Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in his name. Amen. In the last decade or two, psychologists in Western countries like the UK or the United States began to draw attention to an intriguing and sometimes infuriating phenomenon. They borrowed a term coined in the previous century, extended adolescence. How many of you are somewhat familiar with this concept? Don't raise your hand too quickly if you have a teenager or 20-something sitting near you. They were trying to make sense of a reality that many find grating. Young adults who in previous generations might have moved out of the house, found a full-time job and a spouse, started paying their own bills and even having children, were somehow failing to launch into the world on their own. The stereotype, of course, is a young man moving into his parents' basement after college. We don't have basements around here, and where I come from, we do. Uh, but this man, he lives in his uh, parents' basement after he finishes college where he binges on video games and other less wholesome forms of entertainment, emerging every few hours to raid the fridge or meet the pizza delivery guy at the door. Of course, there are a lot of factors contributing to the apparent rise of the man-child. Student debt, unaffordable housing in many of America's cities has made it difficult for youngsters to pay their bills. Cell phones and other technology have been a factor. Experts seem to all agree now, at least from what I could read on the authoritative internet, that the brain itself isn't really finished baking until about age 24, 25. We're at a point now where the beginning of adulthood has been pushed back significantly from where it was a generation ago, and we've started to come to terms with that, I think, as a society. But there comes a time when it's just too much, when a person just needs to grow up, right? Our society is willing to put up with all kinds of immoral or antisocial behavior, but if we're honest, there are few things that are more annoying to us than a 30-year-old man who hasn't cut the apron strings, or for that matter, a teenager whose mommy still makes his bed and cuts the crust off of his sandwiches, or even a second grader who kicks and screams like a distraught toddler, as tolerant as we might want to be with people's idiosyncrasies, we expect people to sort of act their age, right? And the same is true to a point when it comes to our walk with Christ. This was Paul's expectation, apparently. He had first arrived in the city of Corinth four or five years before. A church had been established. He stayed there for about 18 months. They had other fabulous teachers who pitched in as well over the years, but in spite of the fact that they were set apart for Christ by God the Father, in spite of all the teaching and all the time, the, the Corinthian church, the Corinthian Christians, had by and large failed to launch into maturity. They were still infants in Christ. 
Another way of saying this is that they lacked wisdom. After all, that's what wisdom is, isn't it? It's the skill to live up to the name that you've been given. We all expect an adult to possess certain skills. They need to be able to do their own laundry and pay their own cell phone bill and schedule their own appointments and reconcile their own checking account. Some of you are sitting there saying, Pastor Jake, you need to chill, man. Give me a break. But folks, all joking aside, mature Christians need the same thing. They need the skill to live as holy vessels of God in the temple of Christ, even though that temple is situated in the city of man like the church in Corinth was. They need true wisdom. In our passage today, that's what Paul is going to expound for us. This is sort of part two in a uh, two-part theological foundation building process from which to evaluate our relationships. The Corinthian believers were not getting along. They were fighting. There were factions in the church. There was quarreling in the church. And, And last week we saw that they were quarreling because partly they needed to go back to the simple power of the cross of Christ and the message that Jesus Christ was crucified. And today that we're going to see a second reason why they were quarreling and fighting. They were, they were quarreling because quite frankly, they needed to grow up. They needed to understand and embrace true wisdom. And what Paul's going to reveal is the surprising truth that true, true wisdom, it's not really about what you know. It's really more about who you know. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. It's not a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of relationship. And I think we'll see what that means as we work through three features of true wisdom expounded in this text. Let me give them to you, and then we'll go through them one by one. First of all, true wisdom cannot be attained by mere intelligence. Secondly, true wisdom must be revealed by the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, true wisdom only really makes sense to the believer. First of all, consider with me the first feature of true wisdom from verses 3 through 9. True wisdom cannot be attained by mere intelligence. Paul begins by describing for us his method, his approach when he first met the believers in Corinth. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much, excuse me, much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. What the Corinthians might have expected when they first met the apostle is a show, an overwhelming show of personal confidence and charisma, this desire to co-opt the conventions of the day and to take and use to an advantage, his advantage, the oratorical sort of customs in a city like Corinth, but that's not what Paul does. He doesn't seek out any wealthy patrons. He doesn't speak in the flowery language of the sophists. He doesn't try to draw attention to himself. Instead, he preaches this simple message. Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of God, was crucified and risen. And he accompanies that message with the Spirit's confirming apostolic signs of power. We don't know what happened specifically. We just know Paul went and he preached in the synagogue and then he moved and he preached in in someone's house for 18 months. Perhaps he healed many people or spoke in tongues or prophesied. But somehow, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the residents of the city of Corinth were shown that the satanic powers were in retreat and that King Jesus 
was announcing his rule and reign over the entire earth and inviting people to believe and be saved. And the fact that he ministered in a way that, so, that was so powerful and yet so contradicted the conventional wisdom of the day may have led Corinthian believers to, to, to the conclusion that Paul is against wisdom altogether. But Paul says, I'm not against wisdom. I'm actually not against wisdom. I'm just going to impart a different kind of wisdom from what the world imparts. In fact, uh, many interpreters miss this. They observe that Paul had preached an eloquent, wise sermon in the city of Athens in Acts 17. And you can read that, and it's very impressive, but, but few people believe and so then Paul goes to the city of Corinth, and, he be, and then he preaches this simple message, and he says, I, I'm not going to do what I did in Athens anymore. I think that's the wrong view. I think what Paul is doing is just adapting the message to the context. And here, Paul is saying, listen, it's not that I'm against wisdom. I'm not trying to fit my message. The point I'm making is I'm not trying to fit my message into the priorities and the practices of the important, powerful, wise ones of the world. I'm proclaiming a countercultural wisdom. He says, I'm not against wisdom. In fact, we do impart wisdom, verse 6, to the mature. First of all, who's we? Paul, Apollos, the other apostles, the ministers of the gospel. He says, we do impart wisdom, but notice the very first characteristic of this wisdom in verse 6. It is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Instead, it is a secret and hidden wisdom. God decreed it for our glory, but none of the rulers of this age understood this. In other words, the wisest people living, the smart, powerful people in the city, they were not able to grasp this type of wisdom. Why? Is it because they weren't smart enough? No, it's because it was totally foreign to the type of wisdom that they were embracing in the world. It's secret. It's hidden. When I was a, a, a boy, I used to do a lot of reading, probably because I didn't have a lot of friends. I don't know. But <clears throat> um, some of my favorite books were a part of the Hardy Boys series. How many of you have read Hardy Boys by Franklin W. Dixon? There are dozens of these mystery stories, and I read every one that I could get my hands on, except when they teamed up with Nancy Drew. Nobody needed that. <laughs> but Frank and Joe Hardy and their roly-poly friend Chet Morton were always finding themselves in the middle of a mystery. Uh, we don't know where the Bayport police were. We don't know why Bayport had so many spooky crimes happening or how Frank and Joe remained teenagers for so many decades. But I love those stories because I imagine myself being the hero who followed the clues and figured out who the murderer was or who had stolen the, the, the treasure. You know, uh, we, when we think of something that is hidden and secret, we immediately begin to think that's something a smart person needs to figure out. Frank and Joe, uh, Sherlock Holmes, the guy on National Treasure. But that's not what Paul means when he talks about God's wisdom being secret and hidden. He means something different altogether. He's actually using this type of language the same way that Daniel used this language all the way back in Daniel chapter 2. Do you remember that passage? Uh, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream. And he knows it means something. And so he calls all the wise men and all the philosophers in the city. 
And he says, you have to tell me the dream, and then you have to tell me the interpretation of the dream. And none, no, 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 none of them have any clue. And finally, he calls in Daniel, and Daniel knows the meaning of the dream. He can unlock secrets. Why? It's not because Daniel is smart. It's because God chose to reveal the answer to Daniel. He, he gives all the credit to God. He says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The point is that if God hides something, if God keeps it a secret, the only way that any of us is going to understand the, the meaning of that secret is if God chooses to open it up and reveal it to us. There is no smart person that's going to be able to figure out what God has chosen to keep hidden. And, and Paul says that the rulers of this age, the most powerful people in the world today, as, as well as the spiritual powers that are so often pulling their strings like a puppeteer, they cannot understand this wisdom. It's hidden from them. It's a secret wisdom because they're completely devoid of it. Why? It's not because they're not smart. It's because they're doomed to pass away. It's because this wisdom was decreed by God before the ages for the glory, not of the powerful people in the world, but of believers in Jesus Christ. What I mean is that true wisdom is not a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of God's revelation to his beloved people. You cannot attain true wisdom by mere human ingenuity and intelligence. It's not going to happen. That's not how we grow in wisdom. In our day and age, we're accustomed to thinking about truth as an impersonal thing that we go out and find, right? The story of the world is a story of finding out what's there and then learning how to manipulate all of that reality and change it into something that's good and useful. And this is a really powerful, plausible framework that many of us have and embrace without even realizing it. There's, there's matter, there's energy, there are all these physical properties that govern how all the matter and the energy interact with one another, and, and smart people down through the ages have peered into these realities and begun to understand these mathematical laws and operations, but the facts are just there. They're just impersonal facts that await our discovery. Rocks are just rocks, particles colliding with one another in a laboratory are just particles, nothing more. But what you need to understand is that that view of reality that it's just impersonal and out there for smart people to figure out is completely antithetical to what the Bible teaches about knowledge. You see, what the Bible teaches is that anything that exists was created by the word of God. That means that prior to the existence of anything that exists, all matter, all energy, all realities of any kind existed in the mind of God before they existed in reality. That God, that everything reveals something to us about God, and that therefore all knowledge, if it is true knowledge, is in itself a revelation of God. It's an act of God's undeserved grace. So friend, if you know anything, you're a recipient of God's grace, and you know something about God himself. And I'll go a step further. Given that all this is the case, knowledge of, of anything is impossible without God's gracious gift of revelation. If he does not want you to know something, then you will not know it, period. And there are plenty of things that he invites all people everywhere to know, but there are some things that you just can't figure out just by looking at the things that God's created. 
It's not about human intelligence. It's a matter of revelation. So let's just take a step back for a second and think. How does this reality confront us today in a place like Indian Creek Baptist Church? If this is true, if true wisdom, if spiritual maturity, the, the skill to live up to the name that God's given us, is not something that you can figure out by human intelligence, then, then why is it that so many of our priorities and our practices as evangelical Christians show that we really don't believe that that's the case? Like, why is it that so many of our priorities reflect the priorities of the world's wisdom instead of God's wisdom? In my limited experience, I've seen two equally damaging ways in which Christians like us pursue a worldly wisdom instead of the true wisdom of the Spirit. I've seen both of them in myself. On the one hand, we've had, we have this tendency to sort of get a sparkle in our eye when we see someone whose gifts make them popular or visibly successful. This is the worldly pool of pragmatism. We love to see outward popularity and success. So when a church down the road is growing numerically, when a popular pastor gains a following on social media or signs a big book deal, instead of just saying, thank you, God, or evaluating what's going on in terms of what the Bible teaches, we start to, our heart whispers to us and it says, how can I get that? How can I have that success? How can I increase my own personal glory? And if we're smart, and if we have the imagination and the personal magnetism, we succeed by our own standards, and without even realizing it, we replace the wisdom of the Spirit with the wisdom of the world because we've made life all about something outward. Of course, pastors like myself, we're the worst offenders of this. We turn the worship of the living God into a recipe for increasing our own personal glory. But I've noticed that the reaction of many Christians against that pragmatism has embraced a worldly wisdom as well. And here's what many of us are, fall prey to all the time. We, we don't like how shallow the American church has become. We don't like that the pastor puts the cookies on the bottom shelf for everybody to take and, and, and get something out of. We feel like we're being shortchanged. And, and so we get on the internet or we go to a bookstore and we try to find someone who will scratch that itch that we have for something really deep and really uh, something that nobody else has seen before. It, it goes beyond curiosity, and we just we want to know something that nobody else knows. Now, at the risk of following a rabbit trail, I'm telling you, this is a, this is a very real danger for the church. Let me point out that one of the, one of the main ways that people get sucked into this is by trying to gain special secret knowledge about things like Jewish traditions or the obscurities of the early church or fill-in-the-blank theological topics. Folks, nobody is trying to prevent you from learning those things, but what we have to be careful about is this, that we would take some of those things and, and, and try to learn little bits and pieces that make us feel better than everybody else. What, what are we doing when we do that? We're just saying... Hey, the priorities and the principles of the world, those are what is important to me. I want to be better than everybody else. And folks, let me just tell you this. The guy on YouTube who knows enough Hebrew or has read enough of the church fathers to sort of impress you and get you to think that he knows something, he's counting views and clicks just as much as anybody else. And you need to be careful. That's all I'm saying. If it takes you away from the Bible, if it takes you away from the cross, you're, you're going in a ter into territory that you don't need to be in. 
And if you're honest, it appeals to your pride. If you really want to know about that stuff, great. It's going to take a lot of work. But if it takes you away from the Bible, it's not good. And you see, what Paul is going to do is he's going to show here that it's not the wisdom of pragmatism in the world. It's not the wisdom of secret knowledge that I know something that nobody else in my church knows and I must be better than everybody else because of what I know. He's saying that the way to true wisdom, it's not a matter of, of the intellect. It's not a matter of knowing something. It's a matter of relationship. It's a matter of revelation. So first of all, true wisdom is not a matter of mere intellect. Secondly, though, true wisdom is revealed by the Holy Spirit. True wisdom is revealed by the Holy Spirit. This is more or less what Paul begins to say in verse 10. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And it makes sense because there's only one person who has the capacity to search the depths of God, and that is the Spirit himself. If you want to know what a person thinks, you have to plumb the depths of their inner thoughts. Their spirit knows their mind. And there's no scientific, smart way to draw out those thoughts unless that person decides to reveal some of those things to you and speak. And the same is true of the deep thoughts of God. Paul tells us that from eternity past, the Holy Spirit has been searching the depths of God, uh, reveling in the incomprehensible, unfathomable, infinite thoughts of the divine. No one can comprehend God except for the Spirit of God. I don't think we appreciate this. I don't think we remember this to ourselves as often as we should. We are finite. God is infinite. We uh, we live within the bounds of time and space. God transcends time and space. We're creatures. God is uncreated. Our knowledge is learned from outside of us. God never learned anything. He already knew it. And not only that, but his knowledge is the thing that causes everything to exist. He's unlike us. So you cannot know the inner thoughts of God because of how utterly unlike God you are unless... The Spirit of God comes down to us and uses human language to convey the thoughts of God to us. And Paul says, that Spirit, the only one who comprehends the secret thoughts of God, that, that God, that Spirit of God, we've received the Spirit who is from God. In other words, believers, and specifically Paul and the other apostles, have, possess the Spirit of God for a very specific purpose that we might understand do you see what he says? That we might understand the things that, that God has freely given to us. That we might have the knowledge we would otherwise not be able to possess. Didn't Jesus promise this very thing to his apostles in the Gospel of John? You remember what he said? And when I go away, it's better that I go away, because when I go away, I'm going to send the Comforter, and he's going to teach you all the things that I've been telling you. And he's going to call to remembrance everything I've taught you. And that's exactly what Jesus does in the lives of the apostles. True wisdom, it's not a matter of mere intelligence. The Spirit has to reveal it. But Paul says, we have the Spirit. We get the wisdom. And so at this point, we're left asking, okay, well, if it's true that the only way that we can get true wisdom is if the Holy Spirit chooses to reveal it, and if it's true that the apostles and even all believers have the Spirit of God, then what is it specifically that the Spirit reveals to the mature? 
At this point, what specifically does the Holy Spirit reveal? Well, as we've already seen, it's a secret and hidden wisdom. In Paul's usage, that doesn't mean it's a secret that we figure out. It means it's a secret that God chooses to reveal at the right time. Uh, We don't have time to chase this out into all 13 of Paul's letters, but he talks about this often. Uh, Ephesians 2 and 3, for example, show uh, that, that God reveals at the right time, the fullness of time, he reveals the mystery that that the Gentiles are included in the people of God. Things like this, that, that God is mysteriously withholding until the right time. Notice also in verse 7 that it is something that God decreed before the ages for our glory. So this wisdom comes from the mind of God in eternity past, but it is specifically for our glory, for the glory of believers. He puts it a little differently in verse 9. He says God has... Uh, this wisdom, it's something that God has prepared for those who love him. So it's for our glory. It's for those who love God. And then finally, look at verse 12. What does the Spirit help Paul to understand? The things freely given to us by God. So the wisdom that the Spirit reveals to Paul and the other apostles, according to verse 10, it was a secret, but it's now being disclosed. It was planned before the foundation of the world, but now it's for the glory of believers. It was prepared specifically for those who love God. And another way of saying it is that it constitutes the things that God has freely given to us. This is the wisdom that God is giving us through the Spirit. So when you combine all of those sort of synonymous phrases together, and and you combine that with a larger context leading up to this section of Scripture, you're left with a pretty clear picture of what the Spirit means for mature Christians to begin to understand, namely, just the practical entailments of all the grace of God in Christ has given us flowing from the sacrifice of the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's how commentators Champa and Rosner call it. Uh, they say They call it the wisdom of the cross applied to everyday life. And they go on to make the point that this is exactly what Paul gives throughout the rest of the letter. Paul is essentially saying this. He's saying it all starts with the message, the simple message of Christ crucified. That's where we begin. And then uh, as, as as we grow, as we mature, the Spirit leads us to understand how that one earth-shaking act of God, that sacrifice of the Son of God, sort of flows out into all of life and brings about Christian maturity and leads to the glory of God and actually the glory of the believer. So pay attention throughout this letter. This is exactly what Paul's going to do. He's going to take the one message of the cross. Jesus Christ was crucified and risen from the tomb. And he's going to take that and he's going to pull it into very practical uh, issues that every single church faces. So what this means is that the sign of a mature believer is someone who is making connections between the cross and everyday life. It's not someone who knows all the Bible facts. Anybody can do that. It's not somebody who can draw a crowd. Lots of people can do that. The sign of a mature Christian, the sign of somebody who is growing in Christ, is somebody for whom the work of Christ and all the things that God has freely given to us through the work of Christ is beginning to make an impact in his or her relationships, in his or her spending, in his or her, the the way they spend their time, uh, in, in, in their entire life. You see, it's not a matter of what you know. It's a matter of who you know. It's not a philosophical matter. It's not an intellectual matter. It's a relational matter. It's a, it's a matter of God's revelation through the Spirit. 
And that leads us to Paul's third assertion about true wisdom. It cannot be attained by human intelligence. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit. And in the third place, true wisdom only makes sense to believers. True wisdom only makes sense to believers. Now, this is sobering, but it is plainly true if you look at what he says in verse 14. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. But pay attention as to why. It's because they are folly to him. It's not because he fails, excuse me, it's not because he fails to grasp them intellectually. It's because he hears the message of the cross and he hears someone begin to take the message of the cross and apply it to everyday life and he hears that message and he thinks, that's foolish. I don't agree. In other words, the process of imparting spiritual wisdom must, must be overseen from start to finish because even though the word of God is perfect, even though it was breathed out by the Spirit, it cannot be apprehended, it cannot be welcomed by a man or a woman who is morally opposed to it. The natural man is by nature a rebel. He is repulsed by spiritual wisdom. He doesn't like it because of what it says about him and his desires. So, the Spirit doesn't just oversee the speaking of wisdom, of the wisdom of God. He also involves himself in the hearing of the Word of God. Only spiritual people, that is, believers, people who have the Spirit of God, can make sense of the wisdom of God. They discern the mind of God because they have the mind of Christ. What's more, they're not subject to the judgments of men. They uh, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So essentially what Paul is saying is this. Not only do Apollos and Peter and, and myself and all believers possess the ability through the power of the Spirit to discern true wisdom, but through the Spirit, we are set free from the useless judgments of men. We don't care what the important people think. We don't care about what the wisdom of the world is saying about our message. We don't care about any of that because we are in Christ. We know what God thinks, and so therefore we are not judged by anybody else. So let's just pause for a moment and think about the practical entailments of this reality. Only by the Spirit can we understand the wisdom of the cross. Man left to himself cannot even grasp it because he is morally opposed to it by nature. It's like Mac and PC, two totally different op operating systems, right? And, and if that's true, and Paul clearly says that it is, then there are some really important implications. First of all, if we cannot naturally grasp the things of the Spirit, then that means that if you possess true wisdom, if you are beginning to take the message of the cross and apply it to everyday life, then you owe God all of your thanks. Because every bit of knowledge that you have of the way that God works through the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gift of the Spirit of God himself. Yes, God made the meal, he set the table, he opened the windows and the doors to the dining hall, and he invited you to come in. But if he didn't also open your eyes to see the empty chairs, if he didn't open your ears to hear the invitation, if he didn't send the Spirit, then the aroma of Christ and his feast that he opens up to all of us would have been like the stench of death to you. You didn't figure it out by your own ingenuity, friend. 
You didn't come to Christ because you were smarter than somebody else who didn't. You came to Christ, and that was all of God's grace. And so, if that's true, if there's any understanding of the grace of God, any understanding of the message of the cross, then it is to God that we owe our thanks and our praise. Second implication. If the natural person, the one devoid of God's spirit, cannot grasp the things of the spirit of God, then folks, there is an urgent need. Our first impulse should be to pray. Our first impulse should be, when we think about our neighbors and our relatives and the nations, we should pray, beg God for his Holy Spirit to to ask God for that which Jesus promises in the word. In, in just a few weeks, one of our families is going to leave the state of Texas, this great country, and they're going to embark on an impossible project to speak Christ crucified among a people who say that's foolishness. And we feel, if you know the W family, you know you feel the impossibility, the greatness of the task. No one has succeeded at this before. But it's no more impossible than the moment your eyes were opened and you came to Christ yourself. The Spirit of God must work. Therefore, pray. Pray. Because by human effort, not one soul will budge, not one man, woman, or child will sway in the least bit from the path of destruction. So we must pray for a work of God's Spirit. If it's true that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, then we need God to show up and work, and so we need to ask him to do that. Third entailment. If it's true that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, then we must preach, not the wisdom of man, but the message that everyone thinks is so foolish, the message of the cross. We must preach the offensive message of the cross. We must preach the folly of a crucified Savior. Why? Because if, we're, if we come up with a better message than that, no one's, no one's going to accept it, and no one's going to receive Christ, and then we'll have the reason to boast. It's just not going to work. No, if it's all about God working through his spirit and the, way, and the things that the spirit of Christ has revealed, then we better make sure that we're preaching the message that the spirit has revealed and nothing else. There's often pressure from pragmatic types to say, you've got to get creative. Don't preach the Bible to people who don't believe the Bible. That doesn't make sense. Don't say, God says, to people who don't think God exists. But friends, what else can we preach? Is there any other message that has the power to save? No. This is what we have. And so, by the way, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there are three things that the Bible tells me that you know. So there are three things that I know you know. Number one, God exists. You know that. And that he made everything. Number two, God is mighty and created all things. Number three, God is good. There is a God who made the world. There's a God who made you, whose goodness and whose justice is woven into the fabric of the, of the universe. And the Bible tells me that you know that. Now, it also tells me you might suppress that knowledge, but you know it. That's why, by the way, you, that's why you get angry. 
It's not, it's not because you evolved into that. You only get angry when you think something is wrong. You know why you think things are wrong? Because you have a sense that there must be something right. Well, who, it is, who is it that invented that? You know the universe is not impersonal. You know it's very personal because it was created by the word of a personal God. And the best thing that I can tell you is that this God you know, this God that you know exists, is going to have the last word in your life. He expects you to live in obedience to him, and all of us fall short, but God sent his son so that those who believe in him might be rescued from the punishment and the judgment that we deserve. And God invites you to believe. He says that whoever believes in him has the right to be called the son or the daughter of God. Now, you might believe, friend, that that's foolish. You might believe that that's offensive. But maybe the Spirit of God right now is like a little pilot light in your heart, kind of keeping the light on and saying, hey, that's true. That message is right. True wisdom is revealed by the Spirit alone. And if you do sense the Spirit of God saying to you, Christ crucified is your only hope, then I would just urge you and invite you, please believe and do not delay. True wisdom is revealed by the Spirit alone, so we must be thankful, we must be prayerful, we must be preaching the only message he uses. You say, Jake, how can I grow in Christ? How can I advance beyond adolescence? Well, given what we know about true wisdom, it's not a matter of intelligence, it's revealed by the Spirit, it only makes sense to believers, then what you need to recognize is that growing in the skill of living up to your name as a Christian as a follower of Christ, it's not a matter of what you know, it's about who you know. So practically what that means is that your pursuit of maturity, your pursuit of growing in Christ needs to look like the pursuit of a person. It needs to be you pursuing a relationship with a person. It's not like going to school and getting a diploma. It's not like going to work and getting a professional credential. It's more like sitting around the table with your family. You know how you get to know somebody? Yeah, there are facts involved. There are doctrines that are spelled out in Scripture, but you're getting to know these doctrines because they tell you about the person that you have a relationship with. You get to know a person, you, you listen to them, you find out things about them, you listen to what's important to them, you trust them, even when it seems like it's hard to do that, you entrust yourself to that person. And this is what it's like to grow in maturity with God. It's not about finding secret knowledge. It's not about knowing more than everybody else. It's about drawing closer to the person of the Holy Spirit. True wisdom is not a matter of what you know. It's a matter of who you know. This is how Paul tells the Corinthians that they could grow in maturity. But here's what's really sad. What's really sad is that Paul when he hears what's taking place in the church at Corinth, he's not hearing what you'd expect to hear. He says, when I first met you, I couldn't give you solid food because you were brand new in Christ. You were babies in Christ, so I gave you milk. I didn't give you the solid food. I didn't give you all the different entailments of the cross of Jesus Christ. I just gave you the kernel, the core, the simple message of the cross. But here's what's really sad. It's been years, and you're still not ready you have the Holy Spirit, but you're living like you don't have a relationship with him at all. You're just following the flesh. You're the children of God, 
but you're living like mere men. You say, how can Paul know that that's the case? I mean, he's in Ephesus miles and miles away. Is he judging them? Is this prejudice? He says it's simple. It's obvious because when you divide yourself up and one person says, I'm of Paul, and another person says, I'm of Apollos, and there's quarreling and there's fighting and there's bickering in the church and you cannot get along, what other conclusion can I reach? You're supposed to be mature. You're supposed to embrace true wisdom. But when you divide yourself up like this, it makes it so clear. You're immature and you're not acting your age. You're not taking the message of the cross and bringing it into all of life. Folks, if Paul were living today and got a report about our church, I wonder what he would conclude. Indian Creek, you're supposed to be ready for solid food. You're supposed to be ready to move on to maturity, to develop the skills instilled by the Spirit, to live up to the name that you've been given as a follower of Christ, to chase down the implications of the cross, but are you ready to do that? Or are you embracing a wisdom of human intelligence, pragmatic, whatever works, philosophical, whatever makes me feel like I'm smarter and more spiritual than the simpletons one pew over? No, folks, that's not the way. That's just going to drive a further wedge in between the different factions in the church. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. Let's pursue a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Let's spend time with him. Let's listen to what he has to say. Let's make sure we're putting ourselves in front of the things that he's spoken through holy men of old. Let's trust him. Let's entrust ourselves to him and grow maturity. Would you bow with me now in prayer? Father, thank you so much for the wisdom that your spirit has given in the pages of the New Testament, the wisdom that he opens up our eyes and minds to understand when he illuminates the teachings of the gospel. Father, thank you for taking us step by step. You don't expect us to be uh, perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. You expect us to be willing and to take the next step. And so, Father, I pray for those who right now um, may have a very clear step in mind. Maybe there are people in this room who, uh, for whom the, the Spirit of God has revealed a very clear next step. And so, Father, I pray for them right now. I pray that you would give clarity, courage, and faith to walk in obedience and grow in maturity. I pray for anyone in this room who is not a follower of Christ, who hears these words hard to hear. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. I pray you give that man or that woman the humility to say, that's me. I've said about the message of the cross, that's foolishness, and I, I want to repent of that right now and, and follow Christ. Father, for the believer who is stuck in immaturity because of a pursuit of worldly wisdom, pragmatism, or uh, secret knowledge, or this desire to kind of one-up everybody else, Lord, I pray that you'd give each of us a spirit of repentance of these things and give us the grace to walk in true wisdom. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.